Christine here. Welcome to the ninth edition of History for Halloween. That means another installment of our crew sharing some creepy history for you in bite-sized bursts. As is our tradition, I am going to kick us off with a story from a historical newspaper. This year, that newspaper is the Weekly Irish Times of January 25th and February 1st, 1890. That's right. This bit of newspaper horror was large enough to be worthy of a to-be-continued situation. But unlike the writers of the Weekly Irish Times of 1890, I won't be making you wait a week to hear the conclusion. I do, however, hope that you will sit back, relax, and pretend you are a reader of this particular paper, living in the year 1890, who is intrigued by the title of the story, which is The Blood Drips, An Unsolved Mystery. Our story begins with an advertisement stating all the glories of a magnificent home called Dunthorpe Hall, 25 miles from London, which allegedly appeared in many London and provincial papers. It talks of the fact that the house is perfect for a large family, on plenty of land, and has wonderful views. It's also available for a cheap price. But why, our narrator asks, would such a fantastic place be advertised for low rental or cheap purchase price? If it is so magnificent and cheap, why is it being advertised time and time again? Why, indeed, has no one taken advantage of this? Well, on one August morning, we are not told what year, a man entered the real estate firm office, and he appeared to be of ill health. We are told that he is thin, languid, and delicate-looking, with dark rims under his eyes and a gray-hued face despite being tanned and likely not a London resident. This we can identify by his grey felt hat and large flowing necktie, among other fashion giveaways. It turns out, this man is Walter Reginald Minton, a mining engineer from British Columbia, and he is interested in our otherwise unwanted house as a new residence for himself, his wife, and their daughter. The realtors were delighted by this information and arranged for Minton and his family to go visit the home. Father, mother, and daughter arrived at Dunthorpe Hall to find that it was seriously lacking in upkeep. The gate was wrought iron and beautiful, though rusty, and the family had to pry their way in. Then they found the windows covered with dirt and creepers overrunning the entrance. But the big shot came when they spotted an adder, which Mr. Minton immediately killed and disposed of before commenting that if he were a superstitious man, he would take the appearance of the adder as an evil omen. They proceeded to the house, which was an Elizabethan mansion. It is described as having, quote, pointed gables and a red-tiled roof that gave it a very quaint appearance, but it looked forlorn and moldering to decay, even with the sun pouring down a flood of golden light upon it, end quote. Inside, it seems was even worse with cobwebs all around and wallpaper peeling off the walls and a dank smell prevailing that was, quote, like that which comes from a newly opened tomb, end quote. I don't know about you, 
but I certainly wouldn't buy this right away. I'm kidding. I'm the biggest scaredy cat around. Like, I'd have left the minute I saw the rusty gate. As it went, though, the family continued to tour the grounds and concluded that it would take a lot of money to repair the place. That said, the realtor told them the price, and it was so low as to arouse amazement. The reason for the low price, he explained, was due to the rumors of it being haunted. For 20 years, the house had been empty, save one time when a family lived there for six months, only to vacate it when they started hearing noises and seeing what looked like blood dripping from the ceilings. As the women gasped, the men continued their conversation, because of course they were skeptical that something so spectacular could be true. So it was that Minton purchased the house, for a price even lower than asking, and hired all sorts of workers to make the place habitable again. And, when the home was fixed up, his wife and daughter put the creepiness of the story they were told about it behind them. They all moved in in October. But their peace didn't last for long. In November, the cook asked to speak to Mrs. Minton. She told Mrs. Minton she had been annoyed for a few nights by the sound of someone walking above her room. But above her room was a lumber room. It was filled with boxes, not people. Then the cook continued her story, telling her that the morning prior, in the kitchen, the ceiling appeared to be dripping something like blood. Later that night, the cook showed up at Mrs. Minton's room, scared as could be, and she told Mrs. Minton that she was hearing the sound again. Soon, both Mr. and Mrs. Minton were in the cook's room, listening to the thumping from above. Mr. Minton went up to the room in question in search of an answer. While he was gone, Mrs. Minton felt something drip on her face. Blood! Or at least something that looked like blood. When Mr. Minton returned, he was shocked to learn what happened, because he had not been able to find a source for the footsteps in the lumber room. All were scared. The following morning, a gentleman named Doble, who had been staying with the family, asked Mr. Minton who was sleeping above him, because he too had heard nothing but heavy steps all night. Then, a few days later, the Minton's daughter was pale and scared, as she told her mother that while she was dressing, she felt something fall on her neck, and when she touched it, she discovered it was quite like blood. And so it went, for some time, with all manners of visitor experiencing these horrible things like something akin to blood and weird disturbing thumping. But no matter how much searching was done, no one could discover what was causing this. By Christmas, the situation was beyond disturbing. The tramping continued and the drips from the ceiling were constantly happening. And the whole thing was doing a number on the family and their holiday guests. Finally, determined to put an end to whatever was causing all this, Mr. Minton cleared out the lumber room, put a bed in it, and told everyone that he was going to sleep in there all by himself. Everyone told him that this was a terrible idea, but he promised them he was not scared and would ring a bell violently if he needed any help. The bell never rang. The following morning, Mr. Minton's valet went to the so-called haunted room, and when he knocked, there was no response. When it was clear that there would be no response, he opened the door to find Mr. Minton dead. His limbs were contorted and his mouth open. He had his sheets twisted around him like ropes, wrapped that way as he likely writhed in agony. His hands were clenched and his nails dug into his palms. Doctors were called, but all they said was that Mr. Minton died of shock. His devastated wife and daughter evacuated the house, never to return to it again. 
It was boarded up and remained unoccupied for a dozen years before it was torn down and replaced with small villas. But no matter who tried to explain it all, no one ever figured out who, or what, killed Mr. Minton. Happy Halloween! <laughs> Can you celebrate Halloween at Burg Frankenstein? Frankenstein Castle? A crumbling medieval fortress overlooking the Rhine? Of course you can. But would you dare? The history of spooky season festivities at Frankenstein Castle dates back to 1977. But the history of eerie goings on there is, of course, much longer. Unfortunately for the small R romantics among us, capital R romantic Mary Shelley, author of the iconic novel about what it means to be human, and about the danger of unsupervised science projects, probably never visited Frankenstein Castle itself. But she did take a boat trip down the Rhine in 1814. Along with other tourists, she got to see forbidding rocks, misty hills, and impressive if sometimes ruined castles, and almost certainly to hear folk tales of the region. The story that haunts Frankenstein Castle is not a folk tale. In the late 17th century, the boundaries between science and magic could be difficult to define. Alchemy, the quest to turn lead into gold and discover the philosopher's stone, was still the subject of academic debate. And one of the men fascinated by this subject was Johann Konrad Dippel. When publishing, Dippel called himself Christianus Democritus, an alias that presented him as the Christian version of the ancient Greek philosopher who believed that all life was composed of, well, atoms. At first glance, Dippel is an unlikely candidate for either ghoulish rumors or experimentation with human life. A theologian and academic, he spent a number of years embroiled in doctrinal debates. But his core concerns appear to have remained similar, whether he was publishing poetry and essays or experimenting in Frankenstein Castle. Dippel asked over and over again, what power does ritual have? What is human nature? What is the body made of? And of course, importantly, what can make the nature of things, whether bread or wine or quicksilver, change and how? It was God's will, Dibble wrote, that he should look into the secrets of nature and through much error to more surely establish the nature of the truth. According to Dibble, one of his errors was dropping a beaker on the floor which meant he couldn't test his theory about turning a mixture of silver and quicksilver into gold. But despite this setback, his reputation as an alchemist spread. And especially after his sudden and mysterious death, the rumors about what he had actually been doing in his years of experiments grew. In addition to inventing new medicines, had he been trying to invent something else? Something more entirely new? The darkest stories about the alchemist of Castle Frankenstein are, of course, unverifiable. But what is certain is that Dippel believed to the end of his life in the potential transformation of humanity itself. Hello, footnoting history listeners. It's Kristen. And this Halloween, I have a story that I... 100% did not believe was true when I first heard it. Which, to be fair, was on an episode of Gilmore Girls. In a scene where the Gilmores are repeatedly served walnuts in the salad, 
Despite being told, no walnuts in the salad, Lorelai warns her mother that if she isn't nicer to the help, her words, not mine, she may end up in a Frank Lloyd Wright situation. And while the ensuing details aren't completely accurate, the Paladinos didn't totally make this one up, which was honestly a little surprising because it sounds straight out of a horror movie. So here's what really happened. Most people have probably heard of Frank Lloyd Wright in the context of his work. He was a super famous American architect who died in 1959. His design is characterized by its use of long horizontal lines and integration with the natural surroundings. His most famous work is probably Falling Water, which he built in 1935 in Southern Pennsylvania. It sits over a really stunning rocky waterfall and it's nestled between trees. Highly recommend you Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about. It's just really gorgeous. But that's not where the murders happened. That was at Taliesin. Taliesin is an estate near Spring Green, Wisconsin, near the Wisconsin River. It was built in 1911 and people in the town thought that it was going to be for Wright's mother who was aging and had a rich and famous son. And what are rich and famous sons good for if not to build you mansions on the Wisconsin River? But it actually wasn't for Anna Lloyd Jones Wright, though she did sign the deed and own the land, not her son. The house was for Wright's mistress, a woman named Mary Booten Brothwick Cheney, also known as Mama with an H. Actually, usually known as Mama. And I don't know why she had that nickname, but I've accepted it, and you have to too. That's what everyone called her. Taliesin was far out of the way, and that was exactly how Frank and Mama wanted it. They were both married and had both left their spouses in 1909 and ran off together to Europe. Yes, they both had kids. No, Wright's wife did not immediately grant him a divorce, and no, Frank and Mama didn't really seem to care that much. But they could do without all of the prying eyes and press when they got back to the States. Thus, Taliesin. It happened on a summer day in 1914. Taliesin was a complex of several buildings and had a lot of staff. And on the morning of Saturday, August 15th, there were about 10 people staying at the house. Frank Lloyd Wright was not one of those people. He was in Chicago doing some last-minute work on Midway Gardens. But Mama was there, as were her kids, 12-year-old John and 8-year-old Martha, who were visiting for the summer. Neither of the kids was particularly thrilled to be there, but Martha invited a friend in from town to come play with her, a girl named Edna Kritz. There were also workers at the house that day. Tom Bunker, who was a handyman. Billy Weston, who was a carpenter, whose work Wright particularly admired, and whose son, Ernest, was with him that day. Two architectural draftsmen, Emile Brodel and Herbert Fritz, and a gardener named David Lindblom. And Julian and Gertrude Carlton. Gertrude was the cook, and Julian was kind of like a butler-handyman combo, but Sometimes people also describe Julian as the cook, though the records at the time don't usually refer to him that way. 
There is a bit of ambiguity about where they were originally from. The couple claimed that they were from Barbados, but historians aren't really sure. Maybe the West Indies, maybe Cuba, maybe even Alabama. They did live for a time in Chicago before being hired to work at Taliesin. Julian was kind of a small guy, about five foot eight and 145 pounds, which keep that in mind later. The Carltons were not in Taliesin long when Julian apparently started causing some problems. Billy Weston and David Lindblom were overheard talking about him at a Spring Green Tavern in July, and they were a little disturbed by his behavior. On August 7th, Julian bought some muriatic acid from a drugstore in town. And you can buy muriatic acid, which is a type of hydrochloric acid, at Home Depot to strip your masonry and etch your concrete, if that is your thing. The acid purchase only raised suspicion in hindsight, but Julian was also a handyman, so I guess at the time it made sense. On August 12th, he had a confrontation with Emile, and the two had words. Or rather, Emile called Julian, quote, a black son of a bitch. And we don't know what Julian said, but he did refuse to saddle Emile's horse, which was what prompted the whole exchange in the first place. By this time, Julian had grown very paranoid and reportedly was seen with a butcher's knife late at night staring out the window, which kind of upset some people. And Taliesin was looking for a new cook slash butler slash handyman. And Julian's last day was August 15th. The morning of August 15th, Julian asked Billy Weston where Wright kept the gasoline. He said he needed it to clean a rug. Now, I admit I rarely do more than vacuum my rugs, but I have never been tempted to use gasoline on them. Seems a little counterintuitive to me, but Billy told him it was in a barrel in the garage, and Julian went and got it. That day, Tom, Billy, and Ernest Weston, Emile, Herbert, and David were having lunch in the residential wing. Mama and the children were having lunch on a screened-in terrace off the main dining room. Julian was standing outside with them. He served them soup. And then he took out an axe. He hit Mama first, so hard that he split her skull. Then he killed her son John with an axe to the forehead. Martha ran, and she made it outside to the loggia, but Julian caught up with her, hitting her several times in the head with the axe. She didn't die right away. The workmen were still having lunch and had no clue what was happening. Gertrude seemed to have figured it out and escaped through a window in the kitchen. It's too bad she didn't warn those other guys, but honestly, I probably would have panicked too. When Julian went down to the kitchen, he just took the soup that Gertrude had been making up to the residential wing and served the workers. William Drennan rightly wonders in his book, Death in a Prairie House, like, wasn't his coat all bloody? Like, did he change? Did they just not notice? I don't know. But, I mean, 
There are a lot of questions about this afternoon, and these are but a few. Julian locked them in that dining room, and he threw gasoline under the door. Herbert noticed the gas pouring over the floor first, right before Julian lit it on fire. The entire room was engulfed in flames, and they couldn't get out. Herbert, who was literally on fire, threw himself through one of the windows, fell one story, and rolled down the hill. Emil tried to follow, but Julian was waiting outside with the axe. After he killed Emil, Julian ran back to the door that the other men were finally able to break through with the axe. He hit, but did not mortally wound, Billy and Tom. Ernest and David were hit next. Julian then chased down Tom and axed him so hard that brain matter came out of his skull. Julian then doused more of the place in gasoline. Edna, Martha's friend who was coming for a visit, saw the smoke and turned right around. Martha was still alive. Some witnesses claim that others were somehow alive too when Julian lit the second flame, but no one really knows for sure. Why Julian do it? No one really knows that either. When the flames had died down, they found Julian crouched and hiding in the furnace with the empty bottle of muriatic acid that he had drunk. Some accounts said he was still holding the gory axe. Physicians examined him and he seemed dazed and not great, but not bad enough either to not throw him in jail. There was enough damage to his esophagus that he died 47 days later of starvation without ever really explaining why. All kinds of wild theories circulated about Julian. One was that he was some kind of religious nut hell-bent on eradicating Wright and Brothwick's immoral lifestyle. Another speculated that there was some kind of financial problem going on between Carlton and Wright. Other theories centered around him being a disgruntled employee who I think may legitimately have been mistreated, who was then suddenly fired from his job. But Gertrude, who may have been trying to distance herself from Julian, later testified that they were well-treated and liked the place, and Julian had told Mama that he was quitting because he was lonely, so maybe they hadn't actually been fired at all. The district attorney hypothesized, quote-unquote, insanity. For surely no sane person could commit such a horrific and brutal crime. The Chicago Tribune speculated that, quote, Something caused Mama Brothwick to dislike Carlton, and what it was may never be known. So when Lorelai prompts Rory for an explanation at the dinner table for the Taliesin murders and asks, I believe the incident was over walnuts, wasn't it, honey? And Rory says, the exact cause has not been proven. That's technically right. There is a lot of ambiguity and debate over what really happened that afternoon. Billy Weston and Herbert Fritz were the only two surviving witnesses, and while they were both clear that Julian was responsible, no one could really say why he did it. You can find lots of ghost stories online associated with Taliesin, especially a small cottage on the property called Tanaderi, where some of the victims were taken. People report seeing Mama wandering around in a long white dress, and workers report windows opening with no explanation, lights and doors slamming. You know, the usual. 
I've never been to Taliesin, but if you have and you experienced anything strange, please let us know in the comments and on social media. And if you see Julian, ask him why. Happy Halloween. Ha 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 ha.